As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. This is The Athletic Baseball Show on The Athletic Podcast Network. Welcome to the 3-0 Show, part of the Athletic Baseball Show. It is Wednesday, January 25th. Derek Ben Riper, Ido Saris, Katie Wu here with you on this Wednesday. And we begin today with news that Scott Rowland has been voted into baseball's Hall of Fame. He will join Fred McGriff in the class of 2023. We've got a lot here. We've got a first-time BBWAA voter in Eno Saris. We've got Katie Wu, who was on the story yesterday when the news broke that Roland was in fact getting in. So I feel like I've got two people very well prepared to discuss Scott Roland. And I think this is the fun part of the Hall of Fame for me. And we're now in this this window where the players I grew up with, who then kind of retired while I was covering baseball as a fantasy baseball analyst, like their careers span like my peak interest in the game. So I, I love this group of players that are going to be on the ballot for the next probably 10 to 15 years especially. Uh, because this is this is like my childhood and the beginning of my work life all rolled into one. Katie, let's start with you. Just the overall feeling on Scott Rowland. For me, the numbers certainly back up his his case to be here. And uh, it seems like he is really just beloved everywhere he played. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when you look at Scott Rowland, the, the accolades speak for himself, right? He was largely regarded as the best defensive third baseman of his generation, eight gold gloves, seven-time All-Star, pivotal. I know he played for four franchises, but he played such a pivotal role for the Cardinals in their 2006 World Series championship. For me, though, when you're looking at Scott Rowland's case, it is, and this is something that Eno is probably very familiar with as well, it's perplexing to me to see just how underrepresented, underrepresented third base is in general in the Hall of Fame. I mean, Scott Rowland became just the second third baseman to debut in the last 40 years to be elected into the Hall of Fame. The only other third baseman there is Chipper Jones. He became the 18th third baseman overall to be elected into the Hall of Fame. That's the lowest number of uh, players in any position. I do think we'll start to see that trend start to turn. I mean, you have Adrian Beltre, who, in my opinion, first ballot Hall of Famer, and you're looking certainly at what guys like Manny Machado, Nolan Arnato, Matt Chapman are doing now. Um, but Scott Rowland really, I think, represented the hot corner at a time where it was really difficult to do so in that kind of era of baseball. 
Yeah, and I think that uh, there's some pushback on Roland. I've definitely been uh, active on Twitter uh, defending my vote for Scott Roland and defending his inclusion. And I think that one of the reasons why third basemen have been underrepresented and why there is pushback on Scott Roland is that, um, you know, the value of defense at third base is something that we don't all agree on, I think. You know, that's a nice way of putting it, but, you know, you look at Fangraph's war and it says he's uh, the now the eighth best uh, uh, third baseman among those Hall of Fame third basemen uh, by war, by wins above replacement on Fangraph's. Um, by home runs, he's seventh. Uh, by stolen bases, he's eighth. Uh, by defensive value, though, he's third. You know, he's basically one of the top three to five third defensive third basemen in the history of baseball. And I think that gives us a little insight as to why third base has not been represented so well is because people think of third base as another first base, I think. I think they think of third base as a place where you need to put up 30 to hundreds, you know, every year. And you need to have the 500 homers and you need to do the things that the first baseman need to do. But I tend to think that there is a lot of value in first base. People ask me, well, Roland didn't lead the league in anything. I'm like, well, he did. He had eight gold gloves. I mean, that's sort of like leading the league in defense, isn't it? Like, uh, I don't know. As much as I don't love some of the gold glove votes, like there's been some bad ones out there. It still does actually give you insight into Roland. And the last thing I think that Roland represents that makes it difficult on people is uh, the sort of compiler or consistently excellent player. You know, I voted for Bobby Abreu because Bobby Abreu has like 65 wins above replacement. He's above average in uh, among Hall of Fame outfielders in almost every stat that you can think of. Um, and, uh, and he was basically like a top 12 player, top 15 player every year. Well, if you add up top 15 over six years, like you do for Bobby Bray, if you look at his best six, seven years, he was the fifth best player in baseball because it's really hard to even be the 12th best player in baseball seven years in a row, you know? And that's sort of what Roland was like, you know what I mean? He was like consistently really, really good. You know, the glove was always there. You know, sometimes he played 160 games. Sometimes he played 150, 140 you know, the health wasn't always there, but he got out there as often as he could. He posted as often as he could, and he was consistently really excellent. So to me, Hall of Famer belongs, and congratulations to him. Yeah, I mean, even uh, later in his career, his 2010 season, his age 35 season, he hit 285 with a 358 OBP, slugged 497, won a gold glove, and popped 20 home runs that year. That's a great late career sort of season. I think the system I really like is the Jay Jaffe Jaws system. You can see it right there on the baseball reference player pages. It gives you a really good idea. Was this guy good at his peak? Very good at his peak. Excellent at his peak. Was he good for his whole career? Very good for his whole career. Excellent for his whole career. And you can quantify. You can see it right up against the other average Hall of Famers at his position. It's the easiest way to sort of end a debate for someone who might be on the borderline. Scott Rowland is in, clearly, by numbers. But he's also in by kind of more traditional metrics too. I, I would think it was one of those moments where some of the the older members of the BBWA and the younger members of the BBWAA were closer to coming to a consensus on a player than they have been in the past. I think it's reflected in the low vote totals Roland was getting initially. 
right? He started from a really low place to end up getting in just a few years later, which is to me a sign that maybe, just maybe, we're going to get more of these decisions right on these next few ballots. I would agree. And I think it's really difficult to get anyone to agree on a 75% majority, regardless of of the topic, right? And to get such a complex group of the BBWA, which is made up of so many different generations of baseball, it it's almost impossible. So I, I was really happy to see that we avoided another uh, lockout of the Hall of Fame. I, I do think Scott Rowland is so deserving. But what really struck me about Roland yesterday. I mean, we we were able to hop on the Zooms that he did. Um, the announcement becomes official on MLB Network, and he immediately hops in one of his Zooms. It was the overwhelming gratitude he had of not just the four organizations he played with, where he played a pivotal part, but he talked about how each organization sort of shaped his career, how he learned how to play in Philadelphia, how when he was traded to St. Louis, the veterans there taught him that he needed to fix his mindset about the game and truly go into a a winning mentality. I know his stop in, in Toronto was relatively short and there were some injuries there, but he also changed the game in Cincinnati. He changed the culture of the Reds. And like you talked about DVR, there's a, his last three seasons of his career, two of them were all-star seasons with Cincinnati. He was part of that 2012 run in the postseason for Cincinnati. So to hear him be able to speak so eloquently on each each chapter, if you will, of his career and be able to share that moment for, and how impactful that was, I thought that was Really interesting, and uh, props to Scott Rowland for um, just the way he handled it. After the BBWA Zooms, I thought this was really noteworthy. He reached out to Red's PR, and he asked if he could speak to the media separately that represented those four regional markets so he could continue you know, reflecting on how each team changed his career and helped elevate what is now, obviously, a Hall of Fame caliber career. But I just thought that really spoke to the overall character of Scott during probably one of the big days of his life. Yeah, that's that's pretty cool. He also, you know, he sits at the nexus of of an issue within the Hall of Fame writ large, which is that we are electing fewer players as a percentage of the whole. Um, you know, there are more teams and more players, and we're we're electing fewer players to the Hall of Fame. You talked about a shutout in the past. We've had shutout years, and um, and I think I think one of the problems is that. Um, Let's say you're a, there's a small hall versus big hall, right? There's this there's this idea that we should have a small hall. It should be really the very only the very 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 best, and um, we shouldn't have these like very excellent players in there. There should be a hall of the very good or something like that. Um, I, I I think I think and I'm a big hall guy, so maybe this is just bias, or maybe it's just my opinion that I'm about to give you. But uh, the numbers bear out that we're electing fewer and fewer people, and I think the problem is. There are always going to be first ballot Hall of Famers or inner circle Hall of Famers. There's always going to be Mount Rushmore. You know, you're always going to have Willie Mays and, you know, Babe Ruth and Joe Dimash. You're going to, you know, you're going to have those guys. But you don't have to be those guys to be in the Hall of Fame. So immediately you've created within your Hall of Fame. This idea there might be some separation within the Hall of Fame. And so I think some people want everybody in the Hall of Fame to be Willie Mays, you know, et cetera. Um, and I think that actual an actual Hall of Fame that shows us the sort of ups and downs of baseball over time and gives us a representative view of like what was baseball like when Scott Rowland was playing? He was a Hall of Famer. You know, so like was you know, was there also like a Willie Mays of his time? Yes, but like 
that gives there's still room for guys to be not as good as the very best player in the game. If we only did the very best player in the game, we might have 20 people in the Hall of Fame. Mike Trout would get in and then... Yeah, from right now, who would get in? You, you you can't name any of the young guys because because they haven't had their career yet, right? So as among the older guys right now, Pujols just retired. I think you would you put him in, but it, it, was he the best player in baseball? He was early on. Mm-hmm. I mean that's part of that's part of this whole thing, right? Like some players are, are are the best in baseball for a little bit of time. I mean I just think I just think and the one thing that does annoy me about this discourse is just how it plays out online. You know, and I understand it's at the nexus of a lot of things that people are really uh, passionate about, which is my team, uh, the value of stats. Stats are killing the game or stats are getting crappier or whatever they are. Um, And then uh, my favorite player. So, you know, uh, I got a lot of guff for not voting for Jimmy Rollins. Uh, I got a lot of guff for voting for Scott Rollins. And it's just not that pleasant, honestly. Well, okay. So this is the first year that you you had a ballot. Do you think baseball writers should be responsible for this process? I realize there's another way in through the committee, right? That that can happen after you fall off the ballot. But do you think this is part of the problem? Is that the the burden of making the decision and burden is carrying a little extra weight here, but it falls on a lot, of, a lot of writers are not even still active baseball writers. They may have covered the game years ago. But what floors me is when ballots are revealed and I see a name on it that I don't recognize. And I say this as someone who's been way too online for the last 20 years, right? If I've, I've read so many random stories written by people I've never met. If I see a name I haven't seen, it's like, whoa. You used to do news at Rotowire. Like right. Very yeah. big, one of your first, very first jobs was news at Rotowire. That requires reading all the sort of beat writer stuff and taking out the news bit. Yeah, it's aggregating yeah. content for a fantasy sports site where it's like your job is to click on everything that comes through, which, you know, pre Twitter was a little easier. In the Twitter era, it became really hard to do that. I did it for multiple sports. So even if this person who has a ballot was a baseball writer in 1995 and continued to write about other sports later, and I still didn't see their name. I was covering the NHL, I was covering the NBA, I was covering the NFL. I had all of those responsibilities, and I'm seeing names. I'm like, who is this person? And I'm not trying to completely dismiss the possibility that they covered baseball for a long time and were good at it, but usually I click through the bio, and I see someone who didn't even do much in the Twitter era. What I mean by that is they didn't even build a following on Twitter. They've got fewer than 1,000 followers. And they've got a vote for baseball's Hall of Fame? That seems crazy to me. I applied one time for membership back in those Rotowire days. I wanted access to the press box so I could go in and start asking questions and, and do some actual reporting. And I basically got laughed at. <laughs> because fantasy? No, what are you going to do here? So I come from a place of being a little frustrated just by who still has a ballot who doesn't even think about baseball on a day-to-day basis throughout the season. That that really bothered me. So, Katie, I'll throw it to you first. Do you think it's this is the right process, or do you think the process actually needs some overhaul? Well, I'll start by this. I'm not. I am a member of BBWAA, but I'm not eligible to vote. You need ten years of covering baseball. I have two down, eight to go. So I'm not a voter, but I, I'm friends with many people that vote, and there are different ways to go about it every single time. I do like what MLB has done in introducing the committee in establishing another way because I don't think there should be 
a responsibility on one particular party in any case. Uh, certainly not the Hall of Fame. I don't think it should be the writers should be solely responsible for dictating who should come in and who should not. I also think that there, as writers, we need to kind of take a, a step back and look at ourselves here. And again, I've never voted. So I'm coming from maybe a bit of a naive place here, and I'm not trying to cast any sort of judgment. This is something I don't have experience in. But I do think as we look at the overall different eras that the voters represent, I think if you're voting on baseball, and let's say you are a, a writer that covered baseball in the 1980s, and you're voting on a Scott Rowland era type of player, you should evaluate baseball, not how you watched it and how you covered it during that time, but how baseball was being played during the time of each player. So I don't think it'd necessarily be fair to evaluate Scott Rowland based on what baseball was like in the 1980s. Baseball is a constantly evolving game. I mean, how Scott Rowland played the game in the early 2000s is not how Nolan Arnato is playing the game now in 2022, 2023. And I think we have to be constantly aware that things are adapting, things are changing. And how you evaluate a player like someone who was in the early 2000s again is going to be different than how you evaluate a player who's just now coming on the ballot like Adrian Beltre next year. So for me, it's a little bit of, of both. I do think that writers, I mean, we spend so much time invested in the game. I joke all the time to my counterparts in St. Louis. I see them more than my, my own family. Um, and it is a big part of our life. And, and voting is, I understand it's an honor, but it's also a responsibility, in my opinion. And I think that how we cover it and how we change our, our perceptions of the game should be included as we continue to try to find ways to make the Hall of Fame more uniform and, and how we vote. I think that there are the argument that fans make that the Hall of Fame is so wishy-washy that there's a double standard, there's not a lot of uh of consistency. I think that's fair. But I think there can be consistency in the way we evaluate voting in the future. And this is certainly hopefully it's something I get to do in my career is uh try to figure out the best way to do so to find consistency in a game that is always adapting. Does that make sense? No, it does. It's a good point. I mean, it, you you want some consistency so that people understand what the values are of the voter voting population. Uh, you might want some inconsistency so that we have different opinions and, you know, so there's interesting debate. Uh, so I can sort of see it from both angles. But I also see it from this perspective, which is who would do it better? Uh, you know, there's and I'm not casting dispersions on players, but here's a, I just thought of this weird example. I was asking a player, um, who's the nastiest pitcher you've ever seen? I think um, maybe it was Hunter Pence or somebody. Who's the nastiest pitcher you've ever seen? And he said, Justin Grimm. And he was serious. And he was serious. He wasn't making fun of the question. No, he was serious. And I think he was like 0 for 20. And I'm not sure if it was Pence, but like I, I definitely asked a, a really good player. And he said, Justin Grimm. And and, and Justin Grimm had, had good stuff. But... The point was more that players seem to see the game kind of myopically a little bit. Um, this might change a little bit with the really balanced schedule where you see every team, but even then you're going to see your division much more than you're going to see, you know, the Florida Marlins if you're you know playing for the Dodgers or whatever. You know, like it's just you just see who you see all the time. And you start to, you kind of are like, oh, that guy's nasty. That guy, I'm not saying that the player would have said Justin Grimm should be in the Hall of Fame, but you, that's my, my point is that you sort of see the game through who you played, who you saw the most, who performed really well against you. And you may have some player that comes to town and you're like, you know, I know that guy puts up 30 and 100 every year, but every time he comes to town, 
oh, do you have a really good pitching staff maybe? Or do you guys like have a good scouting report on that guy? Like, you know, or maybe just randomly he came to town or maybe he didn't like something about your town. You know, like, you know, like it's like, uh, you know, they'll be like, oh, but he wasn't that good. You know, he wasn't that good. When he when we saw him, he wasn't that good. Um, so I don't think that players would necessarily be that much better. Coaches, uh, coaches, their whole day is around preparing for their, 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 their opponent. So they have the same sort of thing where they're going to, they're going to know a lot more. Sometimes you can ask, even if you're, uh, you're talking like the managers have like a little session sometimes after you have the, 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 the sort of PR part where they talk about whose leg is broken or whatever. Uh, afterwards they'll hang around and you can sometimes talk to them and you'll ask them things like, Oh, you know, like, did you hear about this, this thing that's going on? And sometimes they won't know. And it'll be like the big story in baseball. You'll be like, did, what do you think about this thing? They'll be like, Oh, tell me about it. And you're telling the manager about a big national story in baseball all of a sudden, like, tell me that hasn't happened to you, Katie. Uh, all the time. And that's no all disrespect. That's no disrespect to Ollie who is so knowledgeable and so prepared, but you know, they have, they, they have other things to do. I care about the Cardinals. Right. (laughs) How many homers does Judge have? I don't know. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Uh, you know, so like, uh, uh, so I don't, I don't necessarily think that they're in a better place. Could you have like a voting block, like from the hall of fame? Maybe, I don't know. MLB itself can't do it. MLB does not own the hall of fame. And this has actually come up with a lot of the steroid thing, which is, I thought, well, wouldn't it be, have been great in the steroid policy. They said ineligible for the hall of fame. If you were, if you tested for positive for steroids, right? That would just make things a lot easier on us because we're sitting here trying to figure out what this moral clause means. They can't do that because the hall of they don't own the Hall of Fame, so they can't write in the CBA anything about the Hall of Fame. Uh, so that's where you get these like weird. The Hall of Fame itself could tell you something. The Hall of Fame itself could tell you something. Then I think there's a little bit of crisis of leadership there from the Hall of Fame where they're not telling us what to do about Manny Manny Ramirez and Alex Rodriguez. Uh, but they, they try to dance around it and, you know, they do certain things that you can say they don't, they don't want them there. Uh, but they can't say it out loud, I guess, for some reason or another. Frustrating. Uh, that's, that's like the, the downside of all the hall of fame discourse, right? Is, is the lack of clarity and, and then the subjectivity of, of character, right? If you're supposed to vote on the character of a player, that could mean very different things to different people. And when character is revealed after the fact, when someone's already in the Hall of Fame, do you use the barometer of the things that people in the Hall of Fame did as like, oh, well, that was okay because we didn't know about it, or that was okay because they were a great baseball player? It leads to all these other questions where there's a ton of inconsistencies and leads us to these never-ending fights 
mostly on well, Twitter. Domestic violence is is something that was not covered, you know, in baseball media before, and is now, and you know, didn't lead to suspensions in the past, and leads to suspensions now. And so you have players that played at a time when the domestic violence was not, uh, you know, something you would get suspended for, who now after their playing careers are getting in trouble for domestic violence. And so that's like, do I, you know, you you were just talking, Katie, about like trying to judge them against the standards of their time. It's like, mm-hmm. you know, so I, I've sort of come up with this 2003 line where it's like, well, if there's rumors of them doing steroids before 2003, before there was a testing policy, then I'm going to try to judge them against the standards of their time, which didn't include a steroid testing policy. Um, but uh, what is that? What do I do with Andrew Jones, who has a two, 2012 arrest? And, you know, what do I, how do I factor that in? Right. I don't know. It's very difficult. Domestic violence is a part of Barry Bonds' story, too, on top of yeah. PEDs, right? So you, there's a lot more to this than just looking at the numbers. I understand that. And that's where so much of this comes from. The big story earlier in the day, before we got the news that Scott Rowland was voted into the Hall of Fame, was that White Sox pitcher Mike Clevenger is under investigation by Major League Baseball for domestic violence allegations. The story was reported by Brick Giroli and Katie Strang in The Athletic. And as always, when you read the details of domestic violence allegations, they are horrifying. Uh, The allegations against Clevenger include detailed physical, verbal, and emotional abuse. This is from the mother of one of his children. This investigation has been going on since the summer. In a statement from his lawyers, Clevenger emphatically denies the allegations. Um, I do have, if you're watching on YouTube, you you see it. I I think it's important to just throw it out there. The National Domestic Violence Hotline number is 1-800-799-SAFE. You can also text the word START to 88788 or visit thehotline.org. The website in particular, I'm just going to say this, even if you are not experiencing domestic violence, you can be a better resource to people who are, right? And if you're like me and you don't know what that looks like, this is a place to go and learn more about how you can do that. So it's really important to throw that out there as well. At this point, now we have this policy. It's been in place for a few years. It's agreed upon by the league and the players. There's a procedure that has to be followed. My reaction when news like this breaks is cut them. Just let them go. Like there's no there's no reason why you should keep a person like this in your organization, right? Just let them go. And it can't quite work that way because of the procedures in place. So we could have a long conversation about how effective this policy is, how this policy should be updated, and we'd probably have a podcast series about that. Today won't be that day. There is also there there is also some thinking within this space that that may not be the best thing for the victims and for the the people in it that just sort of cutting them out cutting them off of society you know just sort of releasing them from their job uh can put more pressure on these relationships uh and, and put more pressure like you know, sort of like oh you cost me my job now you know like sort of there can be more tension more violence uh, that comes out of it if the point is to rehabilitate this person and and bring them out of the cycle that sometimes that can be better done within the context of these frameworks that they're in with keep have them having a job, but having to go to, you know, certain types of, you know, uh, refocusing, retraining therapy, that, that sort of stuff to kind of uh, get them to deal with this within the context of their normal everyday work. So, I, you know, I don't know, I don't know what the best thing is, and I'm not trained in this, but I, I, I do want to point out that some people think that necessarily just sort of cutting them loose is not always uh, the, the best solution either. So, 
I, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't, I think the best thing to do is to sort of research this. We're gonna have to watch as, as baseball does their research. They, they are pretty fastidious about it. They go pretty in depth. It's not the first time we've heard uh, of allegations like this with Mike Clevenger. So, you know, they might go back into uh, some of his previous relationships to, to, to get them the full story. They, they do seem to do that. They took a long time with some of the other uh, people that they've uh, suspended for, for a long time. So, we may not get resolution on this until sometime during the season. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's a difficult thing for everybody involved. Uh, but um, it's best, I think, to, to kind of let the process play out because uh, then you kind of, they're more assured of the veracity of the allegations and that, you know, they're, they're going to come up with the right type, type of solution to, to help them get out of the cycle and to help the victims uh and uh help everyone sort of arrest this cycle that uh some people seem to find themselves in i think you know it's it's important to be at, for the investigation to be as thorough as possible anytime that there are any kind of domestic violence allegations it's scary uh regardless of the situation you add that there's a 10 month old child involved and it, it becomes double scary i think well again i'm not a trained professional in this uh, i i do I couldn't imagine being in this situation. I do think that each kind of, of, of reaction that both of you talked about is justified. Uh, but I do think that be having a thorough investigation. I mean, MLB has done a very thorough job in these investigations before and hoping for the best, safe, most optimal outcome here is all we can really do in baseball right now. And, and certainly hope that every party gets the help that they need. Yeah, very well said, Katie. A lot more to come on the story, I'm sure, in the weeks and months ahead. We move on to some other big stories in baseball from this week. Artie Moreno changes his mind and has decided to continue. This is the downers, downer section. Of the, of the we, 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 talk, we just talk about what's happening. It's just how it goes. He's going to continue as the owner of the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim, which if you're... If you're a fan of this team, you probably had a thought oh, this this 20 year run of us just not being very good. Maybe this is finally over. No, no, it's actually not. And it leads to a lot of questions about things that are going to happen beyond 2023. And I started thinking about this from just the general rooting interest perspective of a team. Right. I think some people hold their their relationship as a fan as a lifelong commitment to a team. And I'm just here to present to you the possibility that it really doesn't have to be that way. That level of loyalty, if that's what brings you joy in this world, if you have wonderful memories with your family, with your friends, of rooting for a team, and you can't imagine life without rooting for that team, okay, I'm not, I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm saying if you are in a situation like this where you don't like what's happening with an organization, you can leave and pick a new one. And no one should judge you for that. You can go root for a different team. Just pick another favorite team. Go root for players. Go root for whatever it is you like. Find something quirky happening in the season and go be excited about that. Because the thing I'm thinking about with the Angels, aside from another possible decade or two of an organization that cuts corners, even though it spends a lot of money on payroll, it gets so many other things wrong. That's why they don't have sustained success. You're probably going to lose Shohei Otani in free agency. So one of the two very best things about being an Angels fan right now is almost certainly not going to be there this time next year. There's already a reason to think about leaving. And aside from that, 
they might still be a bad team this year. I like the changes they've made so far, but it just seems like this is another another unfortunate situation in Anaheim where like what could possibly change if ownership doesn't change? There's no reason to have optimism. Katie, like what what are the Angels going to do differently with Artie Moreno staying on board? This is a bad franchise. Well, you're right. Fans can leave. Fans can express their their disappointment, their frustration, and rightfully so. You know who can't leave is Mike Trout. <laughs> Mike Trout is literally <laughs> being held hostage right now by the Angels. And I, look, I'm not in the Angels clubhouse every day, but I can imagine when you have one of the best players to ever play the sport consistently absent from the postseason, that is a bad look. Um, so, look, I, I agree. I think the Angels have made some very encouraging moves with the exception of the news earlier in the week that they would not be selling the team. That's a bummer. I, I, I can't deny that. But you has, also have to look at the AL West. And if we toss Oakland aside, you have four pretty solid teams right there. I mean, the Astros just won the World Series. The Mariners are up and coming, and they're going to be good for a while. And the Rangers have put in a significant amount of work over the last two seasons to become, you know, alluring. So I understand why optimism is already low for the Angels and Angels fans. And I feel bad. We're about to hit February. That is the universal month of optimism for baseball fans. It is really deflating if you go into spring training and your optimism level for the season is at a three. I would imagine I just read uh, our Angels writer Sam Blum's story on this and I read through the comments sections on the lack of selling and I would give the Angels fans optimism level like a negative 20. And mm. I get it. I understand. Um, I, I think earlier last in the offseason, uh, I nominated the Angels for like my silver toilet bowl of 2020. Early front runner. For 2023, back-to-back titles here. We'll see. I like to be as optimistic as possible to start the season, uh, but not really leaving a lot of room for the long-term sustainability of the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim for me. Yeah, back-to-back Toilet Bowl award winners would uh, would be rough for can't Angels fans. Can't come back fans. from that. You really no, can't. I don't think you can. <laughs> You're right about the timing, too. If he announced this decision to, if, if, if back in September the team was up for sale and then by November he changed his mind, you're like, okay, well, we went through the winter, we added some players. It sort of fades over a couple of months. But this is right when every fan base is like, maybe this is the year we go back to the playoffs, or maybe this is the year we win a playoff series, or we, we go to the World Series, we win the World Series. Whatever your, whatever your level is as a franchise, you're optimistic that you're going to get to the next level this year. Angels fans probably feel uh, something like Stanford football fans did back in the fall. I remember reading an Andy Staples piece. They did a confidence rating from the fan bases. Stanford football. That was on left field. A zero. I'm like a bandwagon Stanford football fan because I don't have a team in the Pac-12. No one likes these guys. No one goes to the games. Like, what's... No, let's let's <laughs> give him give him a shot. Let's let's go. Still gut punch there. Thanks. Um, anyway, it's yes. less personal than you think. I just thought of that that story uh, that Andy hilarious. Staples did back in the fall. It was like a zero. The confidence level in the fan base is a zero. That's that's actually how I feel, and and it it's it's weird. I can't tell if it's the market. I mean, the market is obviously a big market. They uh, <laughs> they are part of Los Angeles greater area but even their part of los angeles more orange county uh is a large market there could be a lot of enthusiasm there and i don't think that their uh their attendance is okay their readership online is terrible i can tell you um and uh 
you know, it's a, it's a, I think it has something to do with the confidence of the fact that they are now projected to be uh, a fourth place team again. That would be, you know, if they, let's say they get to third, uh, they've been third or fourth uh, for one, two, three, four, five, six, seven out of the last eight years. Um, and uh, most of Mike Trout's life, they've been third or fourth place. He got to the postseason one time. People say he can't he can't produce in the postseason. He got 15 at bats, 15 plate appearances in one postseason. It's a little bit like the Barry Bond stuff when people said he couldn't do it in the postseason. You're like, well, he hasn't really had a chance. Uh, so I keep waiting for Mike Trout to have that chance. I mean, I can I can tell a story where I look at these angels and say, oh, you know, this is how it works out. You know, Logan O'Hoppy is actually like a really good offensive, uh, you know, catcher that he's supposed to be. Jared Walsh figures it back out. And on the pitching side, you know, Tyler Anderson and, and Patrick Sandoval and Reed Detmers, uh, you know, Detmers takes a step forward and Sandoval and Anderson are good depth and, they have all the young guys figured out. Like Carlos Estevez is a is a closer once he gets out of Colorado, and it's great. There's a lot of reasons you can tell a lot of stories how it's not going to work out, and that's just how it's been for the Angels. And I think that their lack of dedication to investing in the minor leagues, investing in player development, investing in coaching, uh, which was shown by the fact that they you know they let all their coaches go during the pandemic, um, and they had high profile interactions between Mike Sosha. Uh, their last two managers have both, uh, you know, had gone on anti-analytics screeds, uh, you know, so they're trying to pull themselves out of uh, a certain situation they've been in. They're trying to do it. And I feel badly for Perry Manasian because uh, I think he has one or two more years before they try to make another change uh, or they're rebuilding. Uh, and I don't know what that means for Trout. So I just feel badly. You know, it's one of those things where, yes, he has put money in the payroll but he hasn't put money into other aspects. And he's also been a bit of a meddling owner where he's put his finger on the till and said, I want this player, you know? And when you have that in your front office, it's a little bit difficult sometimes to make the right smart choice when uh, the owner comes in and says, no, sign this guy. You know, that's a, that, that can get you in trouble. It's not a great job. Like if you're ranking GM jobs in baseball, being the GM for Artie Moreno is pretty low on the list of jobs you would actually literally want. had people tell me they wouldn't they wouldn't take that job <laughs> yeah i mean and that's that's not an exaggeration i'm i'm able to do the same thing you're doing with the roster right now you know and say i could i could see this going right better health for anthony rendon otani keeps mm-hmm. doing otani things mike trout plays 135 140 games in the regular season they did make their depth better okay yeah they could hang around they could be a wild card team are they going to chase down the Astros, are they going to win the division? Almost certainly not. They have the worst projected bullpen in baseball right now. It's a pretty bad bullpen, actually. They're not an organization that finds guys because they cheap out on player development. I've been, I've said it so many times in this podcast. I am, I'm like the broken record. I, I don't mean to pick on them, but they deserve it. There have been some like system, like that, some little sort of like good hires recently. So you know, maybe that maybe that can sort of help them tweak some relievers and get the most out of it. But you know, one or two or three hires, it's, you know how many coaches there are in a system. <laughs> Have you ever done the math? It's kind of crazy. I mean, you're you're talking about fifty, sixty coaches in a system. So if you've got three good hires, it's like, okay, what about the other forty or fifty? Yeah, it takes a lot to build a winning organization, and they seem to be pretty far from it from a structural standpoint in Anaheim, even though the top of the roster is getting a little bit better. 
And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Guys tend to think looking sharp means starchy Oxfords and stiff chinos rather than effortless comfort, but it's possible to have it both ways. I'm all set for summer thanks to Mack Weldon. The Vesper polo shirt is so breathable you can wear it on the golf course, but it looks classy enough to wear to a party. The Maverick Tech Chino short is ultra-flexible, and the Pima Crew Neck T-shirt is perfect for those casual weekends. There's no need to be uncomfortable in your clothing ever again. Some guys just want to look good without calling attention to themselves. Mack Weldon Apparel gives you understated good looks for understated confidence. Mack Weldon clothes are designed to fit your style and the demands of modern life. They look like regular clothes but feel like the latest in modern comfort. They're the go-to choice for guys who want to look great without even trying. Breathable underwear that keeps you cool, dry, and comfy all day. Crazy comfortable but elevated sweatpants. An upgraded classic polo with antimicrobial silver threads. An ultra-soft antimicrobial tee for when you need to stay fresh longer. That's the Silver Crew Neck T-shirt. Get timeless looks with modern comfort from Mack Weldon. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first order with promo code MLBSHOW. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com. Promo code MLB show. Let's talk about the Red Sox briefly. Since the last time we spoke, they were looking for a shortstop. They have one. Adalberto Mondesi has been acquired. I, I thought maybe a trade was a possibility. I thought the real answer was going to be Elvis Andrews, but Elvis Andrews still a free agent at the time of this recording. Real quick to you first, you know, Adalberto Mondesi, an absolute what could go right sort of low risk acquisition at this point. I think it was, you know, the reliever they sent out of town was left-handed. They could use a left-hander, but he was losing velo on rehab. Um, and so I don't think uh, he was a great, he was seen as a great asset for them. And then Mondesi, you know, has uh, 54 plate appearances in 2022, 136 in 2021. So obviously some massive health issues. But I think in, and, and Haim Boom said, you know, Enrique Hernandez is our shortstop. So, uh, you know, I think what, what Adalberto Montesi does is I've been looking at these sort of 80th percentile projections and 20th percentile projections for certain teams. Um, and I think what Adalberto Montesi does is improve the 80th percentile projection. So we were just talking about the angels. What if things go right? You know, this is what it looks like when things go right. What they did with Montesi is they gave themselves a, you know, if things go right, the Red Sox are good, right? Like, they still have that chance. It's a high variance team that if you stick Enrique Hernandez in there, you know, a 31 year old utility player who has, you know, had five games at shortstop last year. Um, like you could probably muddle your way along to being a bad team, but if the Red Sox are really good this year, it's because Mondesi is a good shortstop. I don't even think you want to put Trevor story coming off of Tommy John back at shortstop. So, um, you know, they, they improved their 80th percentile projection while, you know, yes, Mondesi is hurt right now, may not make the, may not make the beginning of spring training. He's still rehabbing. Uh, you know, he's not, quote unquote, the starting shortstop. But they improved their best case scenario is how I would put it. 
I think, you know, nailed it there. I mean, look, the Red Sox were, we talked about this before, they were in a pretty uh, suboptimal position here. But what they did do was increase their their overall depth. And look, Hernandez going to be the starting shortstop. And I agree, if Trevor Story can make it back for the 2023 season, it believes that he, he believes that he can. Is it the smartest idea to just insert him back at shortstop? Probably not. But if you have Mondesi and and a healthy version of that, you increase the overall optimism level of, of your club. The Red Sox are going to have to be creative. They're already in a monster division. They have not had a lot of things go their way this offseason. They've made some good moves, but I, I liked it. You would have hoped to see maybe a little bit more reliance or, or being a little bit more assured in the player that they did trade for. I'm still a little bit concerned on what the Royals were doing on that aspect. Uh, I'm pretty confused about the Royals all the time. Like they were just sort of t- tired of Mondesi fatigue. Yeah, where they, yeah. they're just like, mm, maybe, maybe we'll try something different here. Yeah. Um, but I, I do think the Red Sox improved their their best case scenario, but it's still, I'm more, well, let's put it this way. I'm not really optimistic about either team, but I am more <laughs> optimistic over the Red Sox right here showing my Red Sox coffee mug than I am over the Angels at this point of the offseason. All right, so you if you were just saying total wins, you rear Red Sox over Angels for 2023. Yes, but I'm not saying that either of either of the win totals are going to be particularly high. I'm just saying that the Red Sox will be higher. <laughs> All right. Yeah, stacking those two teams up against each other. Who do you think wins more games this year, you know? Uh, they're they're right next to each other. <laughs> I know that's why I, I felt they're really good win about apart it. Part in projections, good good over under. Um, I'm gonna go with the Angels. Uh, just that that's those standout stars have got me. I'm starstruck. I'll take the Angels. I will reluctantly, knowing that I'm so wrong about them every time, also take the Angels. <laughs> but Katie you said, guys are falling for it. Yeah. Arnie Moreno, he has you guys in his grasp. He's like, I got him back. They always fall for it. I really, really don't want to pick them, but I think when I look at the two teams, I think the Red Sox can be a little more honest about where they're at in the middle of the season, and the Angels are so pot committed to right now. They'll buy. That they might <laughs> buy. buy. <laughs> or, they, or at least they won't sell. Whereas the Red Sox, I could see them if they're if they're similar. They could both be teams near the middle that could kind of choose either direction. Time bloom will they're will more sell. they're gonna yeah. be more future focused than the Angels. The Angels are all about right now. Gotta play right now because we're not building enough for the future. At least that's that's what it looks like from the outside looking in. And you're right. The eight clearly, obviously, will not sell. Oh, jeez. Just brutal. Let's get to our last topic for today. The Cardinals have a bit of a depth chart logjam. At least it's, it's going to happen soon. And Katie, this is a perfect question for you. How do you see Jordan Walker fitting in on the 2023 Cardinals roster? Like, where does he fit most likely and what kinds of scenarios propel him into a prominent or at least a regular role on this club? Okay, so I'll start with my my overall spiel on prospects. A lot of times, and this is not just a Cardinal-specific thing, but if you have a top prospect from whatever fan base or whatever team, that number one prospect is largely regarded by fans as franchise saving the next superstar right (laughs) the next fernando tatis jr the next ronald acuna jr the next star of baseball sometimes an organization's top prospect is just an above average league player and that is still great i do not think that about jordan walker 
I think Jordan Walker, I know he's just 20 years old, but I think he will be a star. Again, though, he transformed to the outfield. He played third base the most of his professional career. The Cardinals have the hot corner lo uh, locked up for the next five years, so he had to make a change. He has not played above double A. He's been playing the outfield professionally for about two, three months. And yet the Cardinals are going to give him a significant chance to win an opening day roster spot outright. Well, that's what you're hearing, huh? Right. I, I, I am hearing that because there's there's a lot to break down here with this log jam. The their Cardinals are projected to have their starting outfield be Tyler O'Neill, Lars Newfar, Dylan Carlson. All three of those guys can play all three different positions in the outfield. Who do you think is the best center fielder? That's a good question. Probably Dylan Carlson. I think Dylan Carlson is, is all the all-around. I mean, Tyler O'Neill is probably the most athletic and reliable outfielder, but not always the healthiest. I do think Dylan Carlson is, we'll put it this way, Jordan Walker will not be playing center field for the Cardinals. Right. I mean, that's right. why I ask, because right. I feel like the person who can play center the best is, has, is the safest. Right. And Dylan Carlson is still so young. He's a switch hitter, and he's under team control for a significant amount of years. He's going to get plenty of chances. The Cardinals have a ton of players in the World Baseball Classic. Uh, two of them being Lars Newbar and Tyler O'Neill. So Jordan Walker oh, will have a wow. significant chance to play in the outfield every dynamics. single day, right? Yeah. And I the, the plan is if he can go out there and prove, he can make that open day roster. I do not think the Cardinals, I mean, every organization is going to try to do any kind of manipulation when it comes to service time. It's just part of the business. But the Cardinals have been pretty solid about if a player earns it in spring, they'll give him the opportunity. So when you're looking at the outfields, Again, I don't want to overhype up Jordan Walker at 20 years old. Again, never playing AAA, only playing the outfield for a couple of months professionally. That's a lot of expectations to put on a kid. But when you look at the size, the sound of his bat, his overall projections, how he carries himself, this is a guy who's going to come into spring with a significant chance to make the roster and a significant chance to play his way onto the roster. And that's the biggest difference for me. It won't just be how does he look on the backfields. He'll have a chance to play professional baseball with these major leaguers almost every single day because so many of the Cardinals players are going to be in the World Baseball Classic. We had stumbled into this problem from the fantasy perspective on a position preview of rates and barrels. And when I looked at the depth chart, I said, the guy that's kind of holding a spot in pencil right now that could pretty easily be moved to a bench roll is Juan Yepes, right? He's kind of penciled in mm -hmm. as the DH for now. And part of the reason I, I made that argument is that his limitations as a player make him the kind of guy you don't necessarily build around. You're happy to have Correct. him. He's a good hitter. He's a good glue guy. If he's your best option for part of a season or a full season, that's totally fine. But if Walker is ready, you could always play Juan Yepes less and then rotate your four outfielders. And you've got three guys that you said that can play center field and Walker, then you're in better shape overall. Just It seems like between Walker and Nolan Gorman, there is there's a path really for both of those guys if they earn it, but there's enough depth there where that threshold is reasonably high. It's not going to be handed to them. Correct. And I think that's what makes the Cardinals so so intriguing. I know they haven't had the offseason that they or the fans expected, but this logjam is a good thing. We've seen plenty of teams going to spring training, uh, the Red Sox, having to scramble just to patch their infield. The Cardinals have such a deep plethora of options there, and that is something that Ollie Marmel really likes to use is his depth. I mean, you have Tommy Edmond and Brendan Donovan, two of probably the best utility players in baseball. You have Paul DeYoung, who's back for one more year. They're really excited about what Paul DeYoung has been doing offensively. Defense is no question. Offense there is. 
And then you have these guys like Juan Yepes, you have the Nolan Gormans, you have the Jordan Walkers, you have Mason Wynn, who's probably not major league ready, but he is a young, enticing prospect that, again, is just like Jordan Walker, going to see a lot of opportunities with the big league club this spring. So this logjam is a good thing for Cardinals fans and for the Cardinals to have in general. And it will be certainly interesting to see this spring how it plays out both with the outfield and the middle infield, two of the biggest concerns the Cardinals had going into the offseason that they ultimately decided not to address. Yeah, the strikeouts on the pitching side are fascinating to me. They were, you know, third from last in strikeouts. And, you know, it's uh, mostly the same starting staff coming back. But and I and I wanted to say that you your backstory might be you might have had uh, a real window into that sort of franchise savior. Like you came up writing about prospects. So uh, <laughs> you, saw, you saw a lot of that. And then I, then you were saying something about handling himself like a major leaguer. I, I couldn't get access to Jordan Walker at the fall league. So I, yeah, yep, there it <laughs> he's is. handling himself like he a knows. big leaguer. He knows it. He's already, they, they've been media training that guy since day one and he is great at it. Yeah. So, As you can see. Um, <laughs> you know, couldn't talk to him at the fall league. It seems like everyone's available at the fall league. You literally just walk on the field of the fall league and they're there. Wow. No, no. He's getting the special treatment. Um, uh, here we have a we have a uh, we have a, a thing over. It's it's wildly popular. It's looking for a jingle. It's called Build a Bench. <laughs> have you done your roster projection 1.0 for the Cardinals yet? Um, if my editors are listening, it's I just thought about that today. So no, okay. um, <laughs> you're going fi- to I'll file this week. <laughs> it's coming. <laughs> so uh, Build a Bench and roster projection are basically the same thing. Um, at least on the offensive side, we don't need to go all into, I think the pitching side is a little bit more, uh, you know, stead is pretty, pretty less interesting in terms of who will get roles, but let's build a bench. Building a bench means I'm going to throw Tyler O'Neill, Carlson and Newt Bar as the starters. Yep. As, uh, as the starter for now at DH, uh, we're going Arenado, Edmund, Donovan, Goldschmidt, Contreras, uh, as the starter. So those are your starters. Build a bench and building a bench. I think you have five spots. However, in this build a bench game, you have to give me a backups catcher, a backup shortstop, and a backup center fielder because there is no team in baseball that won't have those three things on their bench. So let's start with that backup catcher. Boring. Andrew Kisner. Yeah. Really, easy. actually, not a boring guy, but like everyone, that's that's the right, right. Catcher. I just right. mean like that's an easy one. We we know who it is. Right. Uh, backup shortstop sounds like you've got a name that you were just mentioning. The old Probably, shortstop, it's Paul DeYoung, uh, most yeah. likely they're going to give him unless he just goes out there and cannot hit the ball in spring. Um, which then has they have to figure out before, we, we, we've, but... which has happened many times. If who is it if it's not him? Donovan? It's Brendan Donovan, which makes okay. Brendan Donovan so versatile. Like, yes, he can start at second base. He can also start pretty much any other place right. on the field. So backup center fielder is probably just one of Newt Barr and O'Neill. Yes. And then they would rotate again, Brendan Donovan or Juan Yepes into the corner outfielder. If, if you know, you need a, if, if uh, whoever the starting center fielder needs a break, then you can slot in Tyler O'Neill in center. He's done that before you put Donovan or Yepes at the corners. They don't necessarily need a backup who plays center field because one of their starters moves into that spot, which gives think, them some flexibility true. with how they. Newt Bar looks really good with a shirt off. I think that means he can play center. Uh, this is this is real. This is an important scouting depth analysis. Very important scouting from Eno over here. Uh, that leaves you two spots. So let's say uh, Walker and Gorman do not uh, uh, have the best springs. Who goes in those two spots? 
It's a good question because uh, the Cardinals and President of Baseball Operations, John Mozeliak, have always been very adamant. They're only going to promote their top prospects if they're going to play every day. So if Jordan Walker doesn't go out there and wow the organization, he's going to go play in AAA so he can get the necessary at-bats so they can bring him up. That's why Nolan Gorman uh, and even Brendan Donovan last spring, I mean, the, the signing of Albert Pujols kind of bumped everybody down from a prospect status. That that does make sense. But but the Cardinals didn't call up Nolan Gorman until mid-May because that's when they had an opportunity for him to play every single day. So if Jordan Walker doesn't go out there and wow, if Nolan Gorman doesn't go out there and wow, and the Cardinals decide they need more time in AAA, that's where they're going to be. So I think that's where it gets a little tricky, and that's what's going to be one of the big storylines uh, going into the spring is how are these guys on the cusp of going to be a major leaguer's going to play the spring, how will that influence them? And do they even have the people to, to, to fill these two spots if they don't do one of those two? Like, who, Alec Burleson? Who's yeah, this? Alec Burleson will get some consideration. The Cardinals, are they're great, they're great at just calling someone up from, from AAA and being like, this guy can play for a week. Burleson, to me, is more of a uh, fringe outfielder bat prototype. He, he profiles a lot like Juan Yepes does to me as a left-handed hitter. Um, and I think Nolan Gorman will see a significant chance as well because the power is just so alluring. That left-handed power bat, the Cardinals believe he can hit 30 home runs once he gets his timing down. I agree. I think the, I think the road is op- more open for Nolan Gorman because Brandon Dominant is such a useful utility guy mm-hmm. that uh, this roster projects much better if they just put Nolan Gorman at second, say Donovan is our backup center fielder shortstop, you know, everything. Um, and then probably the final spot goes to Burleson because he's a lefty that can, uh, that can, you know, take some load off of Yepes sometimes. The only problem with Gorman that I think the Cardinals are considering is his defense isn't as sharp as his bat. And with the shift regulations, the Cardinals can't. The Cardinals are one of the best teams defensively in creating shifts that really maximize and showcase just how good Tommy Edmond is, right? We did bring that up on Rates and Bells when we talked about defense being more important at second base with these shift rules and Gorman actually being one of the players that we singled out as not necessarily... He almost profiles as an old-school second baseman. He looks Correct. like a... He's more like a Max Muncy second baseman than a Brendan Donovan second baseman. And the the game may go towards the Brendan Donovan types at second base and get more defense out of their second base with the shift rule. So that, I think that's, you know, it's one of the more exciting build benches we've ever done. <laughs> See, the segment has some steam. Nolan Gorman, by the way, a minus 12 and outs above average. There are 267 qualified players that rank 260th. So that is a very problematic glove for now. He's young. Things could change, right? We've seen players change. I don't think Jordan Walker can play second. Nope. Uh, he, look, he doesn't profile the body type. Uh, no. not, not at all. <laughs> He'd be like one of the biggest second basemen <laughs> ever. Biggest of all yeah. time. Good luck sliding into him if you're stealing. I mean, they don't have Yachty anymore to deter steals, uh, but I guess with Jordan Walker covering second, you don't want to slide into that. You'll probably break your ankle. Hmm. Well, I think that was probably our best build a bench so far. So the segment continues. It'll probably come back around on a future week. Uh, if you're enjoying this podcast, take a moment to leave us a nice rating and review. Be sure to hit the like button if you're watching us on YouTube. You can find Katie on Twitter at Katie J. Wu. You can find Eno at Eno Saris. You can find me at Derek Van Riper. The Athletic Baseball Show returns on Monday. You always got the green light here. <laughs> <laughs>